members of the Windrush generation or their children, their, their permission to stay in the UK could only be proved via the landing cards from, from when they arrived in, you know, in the 1960s or whenever. Mm. Those, those were physically destroyed in the 2009 or 2010. And at the time, well, if anybody did speak up and say, if we do this, then people aren't going to be able to prove their right to be in the UK, it wasn't listened to. Mm. Um, and then you have the hostile environment which kind of sits on top of all of that where its motivation might be something else it might be you know as we were talking about before let's prevent all this other alleged group of undeserving people having access to stuff that mm. we don't want them to have access to but it but it ends up affecting you know the people who were who were caught up in the windrush scandal So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm Nathan and today I'm delighted to be joined by The Guardian journalist Daniel Trilling. So Daniel, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, over the last the past six months, Daniel, you've interviewed more than 40 people drawn from every level of the Home Office, from firm, from former Home Secretaries and ministers to civil servants and frontline workers, as well as judges, lawyers, campaigners, and individuals who encounter the Home Office in their work and everyday lives. This culminated in you writing an, an article for The Guardian's long read that you titled Cruel, Paranoid, and Failing Inside the Home Office. Um, the byline was, something is badly wrong at the heart of one of Britain's most important ministries. And how did, it be, how, did, how did it become so broken? So let's talk about that article, Daniel, which, um, in my opinion, was a seminal article and fundamentally uh, shines a light on the functions of the Home Office. Um, talk to us and put it in the most simple terms that you can find for our audience. What shapes this fear and internal mistrust and paranoia that exists in the Home Office? Sure. So I suppose to begin with, it's worth very briefly just um, asking what the Home Office is at the most basic level. Mm. Um, so it's, it's one of the UK's oldest government ministries, mm -hmm. uh, dates back to the uh, the late 18th century, if I recall correctly, and yeah. it's always been in charge of uh, the, put crudely, the, the internal security functions of the British state, uh, keeping law and order. That's what and pe people in the Home Office, people who've worked with it, often refer to it as the Department of Law and Order. Right. Uh, so, you know, at points in its history, it has been in charge of police forces, uh, domestic spying, prisons, mm -hmm. uh, and as we will no doubt talk about at some length, border control and uh, matters relating to immigration. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's in, in the modern era, it's never been very far from controversy, let's say. Yeah. Um, 
you know, in, in the days of the death penalty, for instance, it was the Home Secretary, the minister in charge of the Home Office, who was uh, in charge of, um, you know, approving death sentences that were, were passed on convicted criminals and so on. Yeah. Um, over, you know, even in the last sort of 40 to 50 years, policing has obviously frequently been a very controversial political topic and uh, a lot of the controversies involving the Home Office have revolved around uh, crime and related issues. Mm -hmm. But um, in the last 20 to 30 years, I I would argue at least, I think immigration has come to be the the sort of biggest flashpoint uh, among its activities. Mm. And that's partly related to the fact that... uh, Immigration control in its various forms has become a much bigger deal in the UK as it has for, for many other countries as, as uh, global migration has, has risen somewhat since the 1990s, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, especially with a country like the UK, which has, broadly speaking, got a relatively liberal immigration policy uh, mm-hmm. in, in the sense that, you know, people are coming and going from the UK mm-hmm. uh, a lot and um, the demands on the British state to sort of manage and monitor that and filter the people it wants from the people it doesn't want and so on have, have become stronger and stronger. Uh, mm. All of that has combined to uh, sort of make that an increasingly uh, pressured area of activity that the Home Office is involved in. Right. Uh, but also, you know, let, let's be blunt about this, it's been extremely politically controversial and the way that the uh, subject of immigration has been discussed in British political discourse mm. uh, and the way that politicians will talk about it. And also, this is something I found through my interviews for the piece, the way that pol- policy is actually determined and conceived and carried out and evaluated is also uh, very much linked to, uh, or to put it another way, it is not carried out in the most uh, rational and carefully thought through and humane way it's very often reactive to uh, emerging political controversies media storms uh, and and most frequently pressure from the political right Mm. and over the course of several different governments you know both uh, Labour coalition and Conservative I think you've seen this dynamic get really entrenched in the Home Office where uh, above all and you know, I'm I'm making this assertion because this is something that came out very strongly from from the wide range of interviews that I did with people who've been involved in the Home Office at different levels. Right. Uh, the, the sort of overriding factor in decision making and even in carrying out daily operations is the fear, as as you mentioned, of how things are going to be perceived. So mm. how will it look if we do this? You know, if we do X and Y happens. Are we going to be seen as being too soft on immigration? Are we going to be seen as having lost control of the um, uh, of the issue and so on? Hmm. And that has contributed to what I would argue is a very dysfunctional way of operating from, from top to bottom. And it's something that has kind of built and built over the course of several decades. And although the more recent controversies surrounding the Home Office and different aspects of immigration policy are often linked to particular individuals, ministers, their personalities, their own politics and so on. This longer term process and dynamic, I I think, is equally important. Right. 
I mean, that's a, a lot of a lot of issues that, that arise out of, of what you're saying. Let's bear down on the mistrust. Why is there mistrust? Where does that stem from? Well, I suppose the idea of mistrust, as I was thinking about it for the piece, uh, I suppose where that comes through is to do with the way that the department, mm, it, it's the department's internal dynamics. Mm. So uh, another really important bit of context about the Home Office is mm. that it's somewhat unusual among uh, government departments in uh, Whitehall, mm. in that it's got, obviously you know it's got these very important. Um, areas of policy that it's in charge of uh, mm. because the home the home office as it exists today uh you know it is in charge of policing mm. um and security as well as uh as well as immigration control mm. um but for the you know for the most part the things like policing are carried out by outside agencies so the home office sets policy and oversees what's happening right. but it's actually other bodies and other uh members of staff uh, who who do the work you know so policing is carried out by say the metropolitan police in london and so on uh, mm. when it comes to immigration uh, what's called the operational side is run directly by the home office so that means that the home office directly employs uh, tens of thousands of civil servants who work in um, either sort of white collar or frontline functions mm -hmm. Uh, so the processing of uh, visa applications, asylum applications, mm -hmm. uh, the actual business of uh, policing Britain's borders and so on, that's that's done sort of in-house mm -hmm. and comes under direct control of the Home Secretary and ministers and the senior civil servants in the department. And so what that involves mm. is a situation in which the different bits of the department are you know they're all under this immense pressure and the kind of political pressures from the top get reflected very strongly down onto those uh sort of lower levels of um employees mm -hmm. because uh partly because there is that kind of direct line of contact so mm -hmm. you know if the home uh, there aren't kind of checks and balances set into that process in the way that there are with some say policing or um things that other government departments might do that are then carried out by separate agencies. Um, but also these operational functions, are, you know, they're funded on what is in, in kind of Whitehall terms, a low budget, you know, mm. they have scant resources. People are being asked to carry out things that they don't necessarily have the resources or training uh, to do, uh, but they're also asked to carry out things to a kind of schedule an agenda that is set by the the kind of daily political news cycle mm -hmm. uh, and so what that means is that you find people in the different bits of the system uh don't trust one another or right. um feel that their jobs aren't, aren't very well understood or that things aren't working properly and that's the fault of um well, depending on where you are in a system, people above you or people below you. So something that came out very strongly, mm. uh, for example, in the interviews that I did with former Home Secretaries and former immigration ministers was that they would quite often, you know, they'd want to praise the professionalism of their and commitment of their frontline staff. But quite often their explanation for why things have gone wrong mm. would be, oh, because 
there's a problem with the internal culture of the frontline staff or the, the staff assessing visa applications and so on. And right. uh, for example, the former Labour Home Secretary, David Blunkett, who was Home Secretary in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. you know, at the time and subsequently has said he felt he came up across this real sort of um, stubborn uh, institutional refusal to improve practices or when they were encouraging, say, the asylum department to treat people more humanely, there was a kind of, there was a sort of reluctance on the part of the staff to sort of see why it was their job to do that and so on. Hmm. Uh, whereas by contrast, if you go you know, if you go and speak to people who are working in some of the frontline jobs, they will say, well, actually, the problem is that ministers actually don't understand what we do, or don't, un- or, or even don't have a full understanding of immigration law. That was how um, a home office presenting officer who's who's the, the home office official who will go to court and argue the home office's case mm-hmm. in uh, an immigration or asylum tribunal put it to me, he said, well, uh, the person said, um, you know, I, I don't feel as if ministers have a very good grasp of immigration law. So, you know, their sort of requests come filtered down the hierarchy saying, you know, mm. why are you losing so many cases? And yeah. the, the people who are having to fight the cases saying, well, you're asking us to go out and do battle without proper preparation or even yeah. asking us to kind of oppose cases where we haven't got a leg to stand on, legally speaking. So, uh, you know... Uh, and then you have all the kind of civil servants in the middle who are kind of getting in it in the neck from their bosses, from the media, from the people below them and so on. So that altogether, I think, has created quite a uh, quite a toxic dynamic. Mm. You paint a picture of a of a department that is very that is very dysfunctional. Um, you say in the article that you think that the Home Office has this appearance of a, a state within a state. And that the the Home Secretary is this all-powerful, consuming character at the top of it. How much, how much influence does the Home Secretary actually have in framing the the direction, say, of immigration policy? Um, well, they have a lot of influence over something like that. Mm. Um, I suppose the the state within a state. Uh, characterization i was making in the article is to do with that that big operational arm that i just um mm, okay just described right you know in that um because it because those functions come under the direct control of the home secretary there's a lot of uh the home secretary has a huge amount of what's called discretionary power mm-hmm. uh, in various aspects of immigration control they are also effectively in charge of their sort of separate police forces you know, we have we have the border force, which patrols Britain's external borders, and then immigration enforcement, which is supposed to, um, you know, is a kind of internal police force for immigration. That's that's the officers who would go and do immigration raids, for example, on people that, that the government was seeking to uh, remove from the country. Um, so the Home Secretary's influence over immigration policy and the way it's framed and where it's understood works works in two levels. There's obviously the kind of um, standard Westminster-y setting of policy and framing of policy. So, um, you know, that's done through proposing bills to Parliament, like the, you know, the Borders and 
nationality or nationality and borders bill that is currently having its second reading mm. as we speak i mm. think yes um you know where that's that's where the home office and the home set un, under the guidance of the home secretary wants to make specific changes to immigration policy you also then have the kind of the political figure of the home secretary who through their rhetoric and you know positioning will then um also have a huge influence. So the current Home Secretary, Priti Patel, you know, she's taken a very hardline stance on anything to do with border control, asylum seeking, uh, removals, measures to tackle people smuggling and so on. And, you know, that has a big, she has a big symbolic role there as well. Um, was it about about a month a month or so ago mm -hmm. there was a, a police raid on some suspected people smugglers and she was, you know, did a kind of photo shoot where she yeah. accompanied them along on the raid and was standing there in a sort of home home office home secretary branded uh, yeah. you know police jacket and so on so there's, there's something there's there kind of, about about perception isn't there about yeah exactly how much so enforcement is happening yeah so so there's kind of that whole area of both policy and perception mm. but obviously also because of the kind of actual real operational power that the home office has the home secretary also has a huge amount of influence just in how things are carried out on the ground mm. so you know the law e even when the laws remain the same the way the home secretary tells their department to follow them to to, to enforce them makes a huge difference and i think um you know one of the big examples of that is uh, theresa may who was home secretary from uh, 2010 to 2016 and uh, was in large part the architect of the hostile environment which mm. I'm, you know I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with yeah. uh, to at least some extent but what um, uh, former officials uh, who I interviewed who, who worked uh, under Theresa May said to me was that obviously you can sort of pinpoint the the kind of new policies that Theresa May brought in to, to create the hostile environment, such as the, you know, things included, for example, in the 2014 Immigration Act mm -hmm. um, or the 2016 one, uh, you know, kind of creating new criminal offences or requirements for, uh, you know, the, the right to rent checks that require landlords to check the immigration status of prospective tenants and so on. But, but equally important, uh, the former officials that I spoke to said was the fact that, um, you know, it, it was the cumulative effect of sort of the direction from the top, from, from Theresa May downwards, was to take away discretion from people working at lower levels in the system. So, you know, there was a infamously, as, as, as we found out when the Windrush scandal um, emerged in 2018, there was a kind of targets culture you know, where, where casework departments were, were being given targets for the number of people they were deporting each month and so on. So kind of uh, pressure coming from the top down to get people doing these very sensitive jobs to mm -hmm. be less sensitive about the way they did them, for instance. So the, so the power kind of works on that level as well, I think. Right. At the, at the beginning of, of our conversation, you talked about how, in your opinion, you think that British policy towards immigration is is fairly liberal in that a lot of people are allowed to come in and that a lot of people can can get out and it's sort of like a quite a very open country. So 
Let's talk about the problems that bedeviled the Home Office. In the 90s, we see a rise in, in asylum claims, which culminate in um, asylum claims peaking at about, about 84,000 in 2002. You describe a department that wasn't ready to deal with those kind of numbers, and you sort of make a, a comparative analysis with Germany, which accepted 1 million migrants in 2015 and hasn't suffered the type of issues that the Home Office has suffered in trying to resolve those people's asylum claims. What is it at its core bedevils the Home Office in, it, in its inability to be able to, to say, make decisions um, for people to to, to get status in the country, and then it takes a really long time, which then culminates in people not getting status, and this population that you talk about in the country of between 600 to 1.2 million people who are undocumented. How has this happened? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think actually you, you hit on the, the two kind of key aspects of of what's going on there um first of all with um bringing us back to what i said earlier on in our conversation about britain having a relatively liberal immigration system and mm. i i wonder if that may will make some of your listeners bristle a bit when i say that they probably um, will yes um I, i'll explain what i mean by that in a minute but the the other aspect is the uh, as you kind of touched on referring to the, the sort of failure to process um people's asylum claims in the early 2000s, which was a kind of, you know, it was a kind of big political scandal at the time. And a lot of what happened after that sort of subsequently can be can be linked back to that moment. So, um, and I think these two things, the sort of the issue of capacity and to, to sort of uh, capacity for the sort of bureaucratic capacity just to process information mm. and the question of what Britain's immigration system actually is are, are really linked and understanding how they relate to one another, I think explains why the Home Office is so dysfunctional now. So on that word liberal, mm. um, what I mean is that if you look at it in one way, Britain is a country uh, where immigration you know, immigration is a fact of life. It has been for many decades. Um, there, are, there are some very obvious reasons for that. You know, Britain is a former empire. It's got these connections to former colonies all over the world. Uh, yes. And a certain part of immigration in Britain is, is linked to that. Um, British governments have, for the most part, sought to encourage forms of immigration, even the ones that have taken what seem like quite hardline rhetorical stances. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in until 2016, uh, Britain was also part of the EU agreements on freedom of movement. So mm. you had a large amount of movement of people within the EU uh, and Britain had signed up to an agreement that this would essentially have very little restrictions attached to it. Uh, but at the same time, politically, you've had this huge theme in British politics for many years that immigration is something to be restricted or reduced or very heavily policed. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of, yeah, it, that, you know, that seems like a real contradiction. You know, is Britain a pro-immigration country or an anti-immigration country? Mm -hmm. 
And I think probably a better way of thinking about it is thinking about it in terms of priorities. So, you know, with the starting point that immigration is something that happens, Britain is a country of immigration and emigration. Let's also say, you know, I think that, that often mm-hmm. uh, is, is kind of left out of the conversation in an unhelpful way. But, you know, people move in and out of Britain. Yeah. Uh, and governments have sought to encourage that for certain reasons, often to do with economic priorities. Right. Um, at the same time, the kind of pattern has been that governments will do that to suit what they see as the state's economic needs, while at the same time trying to solve the issue that some people aren't very happy with the immigration by promising to be extra tough on the bad bits. So there's this kind of split this conceptual split between the good migrant and the bad migrant. And I think a lot of policy revolves around that distinction and government saying we can sort the one from the other. Hmm. So the sorting is where the kind of bureaucracy comes in. So the more that you have uh, different categories of migrant applied by state policy Hmm. to people, the more fine detail that a government wants to uh, manage migration with, the more the demand to uh, for a bureaucracy that is capable of doing that, carrying out those tasks. And uh, it's been fairly constant in the Home Office's recent history that the bureaucracy just sim- on, on, a, on one level at least just hasn't been able to do it because it hasn't had the money put into it or the careful thinking through of how you actually deal with uh, a large scale bureaucratic task or the political will to actually make it run properly. And so the the asylum crisis of the late 90s, early 2000s mm. was essentially that, you know, there was a rise in the number of asylum claims because there had been wars in southeastern Europe mm. and uh, other parts of the world and, you know, a, a somewhat higher number of refugees were coming into Europe in general at that time. Mm. Uh, But the the crisis really was to do with the fact that the system for assessing people's asylum claims ground to a halt because it, you know, they, the government attempted to computerize it at the end of the nineties and the computer system failed. Mm. So people had to go back to processing files on paper, but they didn't have the staff to, uh, do that at the speeds required for the system to work properly. So you had this huge backlog build up. Um, you know, that's something that then got jumped on by the right wing press and turned into a kind of Britain isn't in control of its borders story. And that's, that's a, that's a kind of dynamic that you, you see frequently, um, happen. You know, it's the kind of thing that also happens with other controversial areas of government policy. But as I was saying earlier, because of what's changed in general about the world and about Britain in the last 20 to 30 years, immigration has really been been at the centre of that. Um, but the response of governments has always been, well, at least in our experience in the last 20 years or so, mm-hmm. each time you have one of these crises, each time you have a kind of media-driven moral panic about illegal immigration, you know, mm. quote-unquote illegal, um, about the number of asylum seekers coming to the country, about uh, foreign national offenders, people who commit crimes, but mm-hmm. then there's a question over whether they should be uh, deported or not when they finish their sentences and so on. The response of successive governments has been to try and deal with it as a media issue, as an issue of perception, as we were saying earlier, 
uh, and just promised kind of tougher restrictions and tougher punishments to discourage the bad migrants. Mm. Uh, and that's been done at the expense of thinking about, well, actually, how could you make the system deal with people efficiently and humanely? How could you sort of rationalise what's going on, make sure that the things that need to be funded properly are funded properly, make sure that things work sort of a, a work on the basis that they're supposed to work? Mm. Um, because I think another thing that comes through very strongly when you look at the recent history of the Home Office is that the dysfunction of certain bits of the system mm. kind of work as a an extra de facto form of uh, you know of, of of immigration control. The fact that it you know the asylum system again now has a huge backlog of cases, mm-hmm. um, and that decision making in the asylum system is you know often poor and insensitive. And so on, you know, adds to the. I think, I think, I think some people involved in running a, the Home Office maybe are fairly happy with that. You know, that it kind of acts as a de facto deterrent to people who might want to come and claim asylum because it makes it, you know, clear to people that Britain is not the land of milk and honey, and so on and so on. That, that, that's, I think, the logic of some people in charge of the system. It's not, it's, um, you know whether that actually is true and whether any of this stuff does act as a deterrent is a kind of separate matter. Yeah. Um, in your, in, also, your, in one of your conversations with uh, particularly Jackie Smith, who was um, Home Secretary between 2007 and 2009, she comes out in your article as possibly the only former Home Secretary who was confident enough to say that immigration is a good thing for Britain. But that that is a difficult sell. Why do you think that is? What is it about the British psyche that sort of says, we don't want to hear that immigration is good. We want to know that you're enforcing um, these really, what turn out to be really hostile policies uh, towards mainly people who are here to seek protection. What is, what, what is behind that? Because you also go on to talk about how when you were talking to senior civil servants, they came across as being quite defensive and in that they their overwhelming defensiveness and the fear of being seen as racist painted a picture that um, you couldn't reconcile the good message about migration and what the actual policy position is. So what what frames all of this stuff? Yeah, well, I think um, the, the, the idea of framing is really important. Um, I mean, I think the sort of most obvious answer is why is it so difficult for politicians to make the case that immigration is a good thing for the country and so on and so on, is that we've got this really uh, skewed and often poisonous media debate around the issue where you have, you know, um, in, just in general, you know, the British media is heavily dominated by right-wing outlets. Right. They will frequently use immigration either as a kind of wedge issue or to put political pressure on the government or to sort of, um, well, for whatever reasons, you know, sometimes sometimes it's kind of overtly, overtly racist and xenophobic. Mm-hmm. Um and that has that has a huge effect on uh, our ability to 
to sort of discuss and debate these issues in 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 a constructive way. So do you uh, think, think largely largely that the right wing press determine well, I mean, what I th- happens I, with policy? I think the I think the press has a huge influence. Yes, and I mean I think that's something that um you know, people, both former ministers and um, former civil servants who I spoke to said was that, that that's part of that fear we were talking about earlier, that that, that mm. sort of policy is made uh, with one eye on the Daily Mail, essentially, you know, that's the, and, and that's what people I spoke to would say that, you know, there's a there's sort of, that, that idea of the fear of being seen to lose control of immigration mm. is all about the fear of how right-wing, right, the right-wing media will, will um uh, will report on that you mm. know that's um uh something of so a former communications officer former press officer in the department said said to me you know frankly they in the comms team you know they weren't you know if the if if a liberal outlet like the guardian complains about how beastly the home office are being to asylum seekers or uh another group of people they're not so bothered about that. What they're, you know, they're bothered about negative stories that come from the the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph and so on. Um, and that, I mean, that's that's my read. So my reading of that is that tells you a lot about the sort of skewed uh, political balance of the, particularly the British press yeah. um, and the kind of political influence that's held uh, more generally over the years. But I think often, if you're looking at it from the outside. Uh, like you and I might be, the, yeah. sort of people often get too stuck on just on the media issue. And uh, maybe this is me being a bit defensive as a journalist as well. But I also <laughs> yeah. think, okay, the framing is really important. But the reason why framing works, you know, you can't, you can't just pick any subject and frame it in any way you like as a media organisation and think that that will have a kind of impact. Mm-hmm. The reason why say the daily mail is so effective with the issues that it picks on and the ways in which it chooses to frame them is because it picks up on things that exist in wider society you know it picks up on tensions and and particular attitudes and perceptions and conflicts and seeks to amplify them and so the 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 kind of two things that i think are are the the most important when when we're talking about uh, sort of immigration historically in Britain is, first of all, I would I would see this as a kind of cultural historical issue that there's a long story of you know Britain's history as an empire, um, mm. one whose power was you know founded at, explicitly on notions of British or white racial superiority, mm. uh, and that the the end of empire. Uh, you know, one of the sort of um, one of the processes at the end of empire was this kind of shift of British people's self-perception from seeing them as this kind of imperial race, mm-hmm. imperial nation ruling the waves and so on, to coming to think of themselves as just a kind of nation, sort of an island-based nation-state, so to speak, mm. and then not really having a sort of sufficient narrative to then explain the uh, uh, you know the, the sort of deep contacts that Britain had with these other parts of the world and the fact that people were migrating back and forth and so on mm. um, and 
you know, there's the legacy, you know, of these kind of very serious racist uh, backlashes to post-war, post-colonial immigration. And I think that's something we've still not fully worked through and resolved. And, you know, there are all sorts of ideas tied up with that in a way that immigration is talked about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the other thing is also it, that kind of overlaps with something that I think has actually become more important in, in recent years, um, which is know how you describe it i think maybe the best way to describe it is kind of the politics of scarcity mm-hmm. you know so the, the sort of increasingly dominant idea that there's not enough to go around and therefore people who don't deserve access to it should be excluded you know mm. which which has been there for years and years you know that's a common political theme i suppose but yeah. i think that's really really has intensified mm-hmm. over the last decades to 15 years, you know, particularly since 2010 onwards with with the rolling out of uh, sort of austerity policies under the coalition and so on. Mm. Um, And something like the hostile environment also really taps into that. So there's the kind of, you know, the sort of general, that cultural historical background to immigration restrictions or or kind of heavy policing of the borders and so on that's about uh, a nation's self-image and so we're, we're kind of defending your cultural or national identity and so on and so on. But also, and I think it's really important not to discount the other side of it, which is to do with uh, basically it's like, I mean, I, I can't remember who put this to me mm. One of in one of my conversations for this piece, but it's basically about stopping people getting access to free stuff they don't deserve, which has been such a major theme of the, the governments we've had uh, for more than a decade now. That so, language, you know, kind of the, the choice of that language is really quite, it's quite illuminating, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I would say in fairness, that didn't come from someone within the Home Office, but more from someone sort of observing and trying to make sense of what their logic was. But mm. I think it, it ring, you know, it rings true that if you look at the policies associated with the hostile environment, a lot of them are about excluding people from access to uh, public money, basically, you know, mm. most notoriously, well, actually, no, not, in fact, not notoriously enough, the mm. massive expansion of NRPF restrictions, no recourse yeah. to public funds, mm. which blocks many immigrants from accessing the standard forms of, of welfare and, you know, has been responsible for this horrific um, pattern of destitution among people who, you know, people who fall on hard times, people whose um, settlement applications or asylum applications are rejected and so on that they then find they can't access Mm. anything but the most kind of basic and humiliating forms of support to keep themselves alive and you can't disentangle that from the kind of wider uh, austerity agenda of the last decade you know that this is a period the period in which this stuff was rolled out is also a period in which the government was trying to um you know it was cutting the money spent on welfare Mm-hmm. and was doing it by selecting particular groups of people who were demonized as undeserving poor uh, to justify what it was doing. So this wasn't just happening where immigration was concerned, but it was happening with sort of housing policies and benefits policies and, uh, and so on. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting what, what you narrate, because for, for most of our listeners who will, will have listened to, to previous episodes of this podcast, we've had guests who've come on here and talked about Britain's history and its exclusionary um, ideas. The way that they they are borne out when it comes to migration 
is um, fundamentally seen in the 1971 Nationality Act, which after empire uh, takes away citizenship from people in the colonies and excludes them by putting in ancestral clauses which put in that you need to have at least a grandparent who was born in Britain before 1971 in order for you to, to attain citizenship. And so when you, when you see all of these things emerging and you talk about how Theresa May, Theresa May, Mrs. May, who then became prime minister when she was at the home office, she brought in all of these checks, which amounted to papers, please. That's a legacy of, of empire. And let's talk about citizens becoming border guards that you talk about in the article. Talk to us about, about that and how those policies have manifested. Yeah, so this was the, you know, I suppose the, the, the hostile environment is obviously it's a bit kind of um, widely used phrase and I think it's just become a byword for uh, any any sort of tough immigration policies or sort of anything unpleasant that the Home Office will do you'll see that phrase come up when people discuss it but strictly speaking it's it's kind of narrower mm. um, you know it refers to something a bit narrower which was really the you know this was this was the the, the incoming coalition government's way of um, showing that it had control of uh, immigration was um, that David Cameron, who became prime minister in 2010, had pledged to reduce uh, net migration uh, figures to to the tens of that you know sort of to the tens of thousands a year, mm -hmm. which would have been you know a sort of kind of drastic reduction in in immigration to the UK. Mm. Um, uh, and, and which many people at the time said was a kind of unachievable target, not least because a large part of that immigration was from within the European Union. So almost by mm. definition, it was something that Britain couldn't decide whether it wanted to reduce or increase or so on. Mm. Um, but as a kind of trade-off, um, the way that they then set about trying to reduce overall immigration figures was by... Um, finding ways to police immigration in a much kind of tougher and more comprehensive way mm. at the same time as they were introducing austerity policies to cut back the state. So the solution as they came up with it was to outsource immigration control effectively to sectors, parts of civil society. Mm. Um, so the hostile environment, which was about making life in the UK for people without the permission to stay here mm -hmm. so difficult that they would leave of their own accord so you know this idea that actually the state wouldn't go around chasing people and actively trying to deport them although it obviously there was a lot of pressure to do that as well yeah but that in a way it wouldn't have to because we would set up all of these rules that would mean that people you know if you overstayed your visa or you you came here without permission or so on you would just find it impossible to go about daily life so you would you would decide to leave and the people who were supposed to be enforcing those policies were not under the hostile environment's logic, uh, home office staff, immigration officials and so on. It would be all of the people required to check immigration statuses in areas of everyday life. So, mm. you know, people who worked in banks, um, 
uh, prospective landlords mm. um, and uh, you know plans to extend that even further into the you know sort of into the school system you know the introduction of charges in the NHS and uh, checks on people's immigration status in the NHS making employers uh, check people's right to work and so on hmm. did you talk um, Daniel to to people who are on the front line who are having to to implement those policies what what did you glean from them what do they think about it um well in terms of people who are on the front line that I spoke to uh, for this piece I wasn't speaking to I wasn't directly speaking to people from those other areas of society who were having to do the checks. Right. I know from uh, journalism I've done elsewhere, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, people see it as a, it's a huge administrative burden and frequently the, the people and organizations tasked with carrying it out don't feel like they they don't, they haven't been given a full understanding of what their responsibilities and the requirements are and so on. Mm. So they don't feel particularly well equipped to deal with any complications that come up. So there was a, uh, and you're, you're now seeing, I mean, we're, you're, you're getting a real sort of um, insight into this at the moment with the end of the EU settlement scheme for, you know, giving uh, EU citizens mm -hmm. uh, the right to stay in the UK post Brexit. Yeah where I think just before the settlement scheme ended, mm -hmm. uh, there was a survey done by the British Landlords Association, so the association representing private landlords, who yeah. said that a third of their members surveyed weren't even aware of what the new requirements were after the end of the settlement scheme, that, you know, f that, they, that um, they would be checking the immigration status of EU citizens and that EU citizens would have access to these new forms of you know, settled or pre-settled status or various kind of letters and certificates from the Home Office that would mm. prove they had the right to to be living and renting a house in the UK. Um, I know just from my, you know, I, I do quite a lot of um, talks mm -hmm. uh, and teaching in universities and every time, you know, even to get paid 50 quid by a university for giving a talk mm. um, requires a huge amount of admin to, you know, you've got to scan in your passport and so on. Yeah. So, you, you know, university and they, they, that's a requirement that's been there a bit longer than the others. And universities, you know, they have this huge bureaucracy set up just to deal with all this stuff. So uh, all of these attitudes have now become institutionalized in the yeah, whole country so, on frontline services, at least. Yeah. And so so it institutionalizes what you described as a kind of papers, please mm. culture. Mm -hmm. But then also what happens is it, it overlaps with these kind of... Um, these wider cultural issues that we we were also talking about. So, you know, if in many people's minds, well, not, I don't know, try and be fair, and so if in some people's minds, mm. uh, the idea of who is British is linked with uh, someone's with whiteness or religious I background, suppose. their name, their language, and so on, mm. if they're then told to be checking whether people are citizens or not, mm. that comes into play so that's something again with these right to rent checks with landlords you know charities and campaigners were warning from the outset that this would lead to discrimination in the housing market because uh, landlords faced with this extra administrative burden mm -hmm. of having to check people's immigration status if they were foreign mm -hmm. you know that word foreign used kind of um, in scare quotes there mm -hmm. uh, they might just not bother with prospective tenants who appeared foreign to them which you know well that then comes 
down to the question of well, how does an individual landlord in their own mind decide who's foreign and who isn't and um you know there was a high court was it the high court a court judgment last year that's that you know the policy was challenged on the basis that it would lead to discrimination on a sort of uh, on grounds of race mm. and i think as i understand it the court found that actually that probably it, it might lead to discrimination but not so much that the policy could be ruled illegal you know mm. so there are all those kind of risks that come into it so um, let's let's talk daniel about yeah. the the home office officials the junior officials who you spoke to the caseworkers who who have to implement um these policy positions what what did you glean from them what what's their attitude towards what they are asked to do and what kind of culture does it then develop within the institution itself yeah well i think casework for me was a really important part of the home office's activities because people i think often you know you talk about talk about immigration control mm. uh particularly if you're talking about some of the harsher aspects of what the Home Office does, uh, the sort of image that comes to mind is of the sort of physical, the physical borders, you know, border force officers, mm -hmm. things about kind of patrolling, patrolling the coastline, patrolling airports, doing immigration raids mm -hmm. uh, all over the country, that, that those kind of activities. And I mean, those exist and, and they're sort of very important to uh, scrutinize as well. But for me, kind of the heart of, the Home Office is casework, which is the, again, going back to this idea of bureaucracy, it's the processing of people's applications and requests and, and so on, mm. you know, ranging from asylum applications to uh, tourist visas or mm. applications for citizenship or applications for, you know, sort of family reunion type activities, all of that. Mm. So, you know, with each of these things, there's got to be an individual or a department that assesses them and works out whether a request meets the criteria for being accepted or not. Hmm. Um, and, you know, that, first of all, it goes to the heart for me of sort of what a state does in the 21st century, that states carry out their tasks by, or the way that states are able to carry out many of their tasks is by the extent to which they can see the people that they're dealing with how does a state know who's there and who they are mm. and know what to do to a particular person or not um and um the more that you try and control people the, the more complex that task becomes and people under immigration control for whatever reason mm -hmm. are under a far more complex system of state control and oversight than uh, you know UK citizen born in the UK who isn't married to anybody from overseas or anything, you know, mm. kind of the way the state, I, I'm, I was born here, I'm a British citizen. Mm. And the way that the state has tried to uh, have sight of me and deal with my life and my details is far less than, mm. uh, say, my friends who have come here as immigrants to the UK or came here and claimed asylum and, and, and so on. Mm. Um, but the, the, first of all, the money provided for home office caseworkers to do that is, is really small in, in Whitehall terms. I think the overall budget for the, the entire set of immigration divisions is something like 3 billion a year. 
Mm. You know, which which would in terms of staff numbers, it's the something like the fifth largest department in Whitehall, just the immigration bit of the Home Office. You know, if it was a government department of its own, mm-hmm. it's 30,000 odd staff would make it the fifth largest department overall. Mm. In terms of the budget, three billion, it puts it right down the list somewhere, you know, just above maybe the Department of Culture, Media and Sport or something. It's It's, you know an area that it's not seen as politically acceptable to spend a lot of money on. So that means that as the kind of workloads have increased because they've been asked to do more processing of more people over the years, Mm -hmm. the discretion and sophistication with which caseworkers are able to uh, deal with individuals' cases has, has, has been massively reduced. So first of all, you were asking about how staff on the front line feel about it. Something that a retired immigration judge said to me was that you know he he had begun his career in the 90s and in those days if you dealt with an asylum case and you were you know asylum seeker had been uh you know you you receive a letter telling the asylum seeker receives a letter telling them about the decision that's been made on their case Mm -hmm. uh you would have the sense that that letter had been crafted by an individual who's considering all the individual aspects of that person's case looking at it in the round and so on Mm. whereas you know sort of 20 30 years down the line that had become a process really of um kind of low skilled office workers applying sort of set formula to people's cases so even even the decision letters Mm. you know it's kind of infamous now that they they often look like they're they're kind of copy and pasted from a drop down menu. You know, dear Mister or Mrs X, yeah. you have been accepted or rejected for mm. this reason because and blah blah blah. And you know that's where those um, notorious sort of mistakes that are made on letters where they tell somebody you know that the entire letter. Someone is from the Democratic Republic of Congo, but the refusal letter for their asylum claims keeps mentioning Afghanistan, you know, mm. for instance, those kind of things. Um, and, and the staff that work in those areas, um, from from the ones that I spoke to, they they feel, I think they often feel very frustrated by the limited resources they're given to do their job. They also feel like they're unfairly maligned for being cruel and callous and racist and, mm-hmm. you know, and so on, whereas often they feel like they're doing what you know they they're doing what they're asked by ministers they think they're working even, in in the public interest yeah or even just in the it's what their bosses have told them to do and mm. essentially they have to do it um, but but even more than that i think that often they they're being asked to do something but they're not given the resources to do it properly so they get blamed they kind of get blamed either way yeah, what, uh, I, thought, I thought the really telling thing for me actually was with the um, the presenting officers, the people that represent the Home Office in court. Mm. Who, unless you get to a kind of higher level of, a, of, of immigration and asylum appeals, mm-hmm. are they're not lawyers? They're not trained lawyers. They're they're Home Office clerical staff who um, are given training to kind of argue the Home Office's case in court, but at a very basic level, and they usually you know they will receive the briefs of a case the details of a case that they have to argue in court maybe 90 minutes before they have to go and stand up in court and argue the home office case so they you know have barely any time to get acquainted with the details of what can be extremely complex and very intimate and potentially 
very traumatic set of circumstances for the person they're dealing with and and yet they're then sent out there um to do it and as a, another retired judge put it to me i mean the, this other judge said they're being sent out into battle without the tools for the job mm. and that that leads to situations in which this judge had said several times had seen presenting officers actually break down in court from the emotional strain of having to oppose cases mm. where the details were so traumatic and they they you know sort of couldn't bear what they were doing the, the thought that they were actually having to argue to have somebody sent back to a situation where their life would be in danger potentially for mm. i mean the the picture that emerges from that the fact that presenting officers are are not actually lawyers they're just people who are trained as I think some people will find that extraordinary um, that the Home Office is using just people who are just basically trained to to stand against l trained lawyers who represent um, people who seek asylum or who are defending a, a visa application. Are there unintended consequences that result as, um, as a reason? Well, that result because of policy. So you have the Windrush scandal that results because of what Theresa May is implementing. She's implementing a policy where she wants to say, make life difficult for people who don't have permission to be here. But what ends up happening is people who are caught up are people who absolutely have a right to be here. Is this not something that was reasonably foreseeable? What did you learn from, from Home Office officials? Um, I learned that in many people's view that something like the Windrush scandal was absolutely foreseeable. Hmm. Uh, but because of the dysfunctional nature of the organisation and the political pressures uh, that we've you know sort of talked about quite a bit, the, hmm. the sort of ability for people to communicate with one another and say, if we do this thing, mm. then this consequence <laughs> will be a result. Mm -hmm. So let's work out a way to stop it. The, the, the ability to kind of communicate it, that in that kind of joined up way and for people to, particularly I think people to report upwards to their managers and, and you know, more senior officials mm. was just not there. So, I mean, you know, the Windrush scandal is kind of where all of these different bits we were talking about come together because, yeah, it's uh, partly about the exclusionary nature of British citizenship as set out in law, as you described, you know, going back to the 1971 Act, mm -hmm. which, you know, not in, not in so many words, but was essentially an effort to, to racialise British citizenship, I would say, mm -hmm. you know, to, to set in stone the idea that it's for white British people and other people have to kind of ask permission to be admitted to that. Mm -hmm. um, it's also about efficient bureaucracy and just record keeping because the other bit of it was that, the you know, the members of the Windrush generation or their children, their, their permission to stay in the UK could only be proved via the landing cards from from when they arrived in you know in the 1960s or whenever mm. and those those were physically destroyed in the 2009 or 2010 and at the time well if anybody did speak up and say if we do this then people aren't going to be able to prove their right to be in the uk it wasn't listened to mm. um and then you have 
the hostile environment which kind of sits on top of all of that where its motivation might be something else it might be you know as we were talking about before let's prevent this other alleged group of undeserving people having access to stuff that Mm. we don't want them to have access to but it but it ends up affecting you know the people who were who were caught up in the Windrush scandal Mm. Wendy Williams um, in her report sort of sums this up by saying that she thought that the way that the Home Office functioned. It had an institutional thoughtlessness. She doesn't go as far as to say that there was institutional racism. What we can't shirk is asking the question, is asking the question that because of institutional memory and tracing back the histories and logics, of how the Home Office functions. In the conversations that you had with all of these these 40, over 40 people who you spoke to, what would you say? What would you say about Wendy Williams' conclusion that there was just institutional thoughtlessness? Did you think what emerges from your conversations is something greater than that? Or did she get it about right? I think, Good question. I'm just trying to work out what I think because I'm, th- you know, there's what I think about it, and then there's what I felt the people I interviewed think about it. If you see what I mean, I think mm. most people that I spoke to were willing, were very prepared to admit there had been, you know, institutional thoughtlessness. Um, I think some of the, I think some of them particularly the more senior people would have been reluctant to go further than that in in terms of did did this did this actually indicate institutional racism or uh you know a, a sort of a, analogous failures um mm. but i think i think others others would have acknowledged that frankly um i also think that um so there's there's two ways in which this comes through, I think. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I should say that the piece I did, the idea was very much not to try and kind of re-examine the Windrush scandal because mm-hmm. that had been so comprehensively done by Guardian, other yeah. Guardian journalists, yeah. Amelia Gentleman being the, um, the most uh, prominent example. And also because Wendy Williams' report was so incredibly thorough. What yeah. I wasn't doing was asking all my interviews, why do you think the Windrush scandal happened? Yeah. Uh, but I think even so, obviously, it came up in conversations. And I think a few people uh, did see it partly as a product of, of racist attitudes. Um, you know, the idea that um, some people are just assumed not to be British or not to belong here because of how they look or where they're perceived to come from. Mm. Um, mm. And... As well as that, I also felt like I picked up a thing that I feel is a very this is this is like a really particularly on the kind of um, the professional classes mm. a really British thing, which is that you really don't want to be perceived as racist, and you know that that's a really bad thing, and you get very defensive if there's any suggestion that you might have be you know you might be complicit in racism in some way. Mm. Um, but at the same time, kind of show an attitude that if not racist in a kind of 
completely direct sense it shows an attitude to immigration and belonging that kind of um has has got kind of a racist logic or racist underpinnings behind it so there was a a sort of for me it's because you know there's you, you can talk about racism in terms of way of kind of um making distinctions between particular groups of people and beliefs about who is inferior to whom and so on. Mm-hmm. But then there's a kind of other way, a sort of other expression that racism has mm-hmm. um, that I think is sort of the, the for me, the sort of more dominant uh, one, which is to do with the, the sort of the fear of being overwhelmed by foreigners. You know, something that's kind of what people might call xenophobia rather than racism. I mm-hmm. think the two things kind of overlap and it really depends on the context, but the sort of, so the thing that came through much more strongly was like, you know, I wasn't, I no one I spoke to mm-hmm. had the attitude that, Oh, well, some people just count less because they come from the Caribbean or because they're black or because they're South Asian or so on. Mm-hmm. But the attitude that was there really strongly, even in people who disagreed with it, but they were still willing to acknowledge it was there kind of institutionally was uh, if we ease up just a little bit, there's going to be this flood that will overwhelm us. Mm-hmm. You that's know, interesting and that I, I mean that also you know going back to that question about framing that's the way the media does this most of the time as well mm. you know compared to how it might have done it in the past so if you think of a kind of right-wing tabloid newspaper mm. um you know like the sun in mm. in the 1970s and 1980s the sun would have published explicitly anti-black content yes you know i, I was listening to a very good um, bbc podcast about the uh, sort of origins of the Brixton riots of 1981 and it had the whole episode about the New, New Cross fire mm-hmm. and the Black People's Day of Action march that went from New Cross up to Fleet Street and you know they were partic- partly protesting against what they saw as biased media coverage yeah. and the Sun apparently ran these, this horrific front page the next day with a kind of racial slur on the front of, you know mm. it wouldn't do that these days but it would it would encourage the perception of a flood of illegal immigrants. Mm. So you know that that and and so therefore that's definitely there in um, kind of the attitudes of the people involved in the Home Office and the behaviour of the institution. But having said that, I know from from what I've read elsewhere and from sort of what people have said about the Windrush scandal and so on uh, that that there's also um, something that kind of is much closer to that definite definition of institutional racism as it, it would have been voiced uh, in the McPherson report into the Metropolitan Police, for example. Yeah, just just so our our listeners are are very clear about what we're we're referring to, Lord, Lord Mac, McPherson, who who defined institutional racism, uh, defined it as the collective failure of an organisation to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their colour culture or ethnic origin. It can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes and behavior, which amounts to discrimination through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness and racial stereotyping. Just as we come to the conclusion of what's been a really fascinating conversation with you, Daniel, um, the current Home Secretary, Pretty Patel, you talk about her in the article uh, and you present a picture from from civil servants who you spoke to who referred to her as a blunt instrument earlier in the article uh, 
you talk about how David Blunkett uh, sort of said that what you needed in order for the Home Office to work was a mixture of soft policies and some which are hard. But what emerges often is that the hard edges is what generally sees the light of day. What do you make of this nationality and borders bill that has come to Parliament, to Parliament and is, is, has its second reading as we speak, which now effectively takes away the ability of people to claim asylum if they come through a, a safe country. Is that, was that official right that this kind of policy has seen the light of day? I, so your question at the end was the official right that, about that pretty brutal is a blunt instrument <clears throat> yeah i mean i think the nationality and borders bill is is the, the blunt instrument in action if you want to put it that way it's looking at a you know looking at a very complex pro, uh, issue mm. which is um you know britain and, you know the britain denies refugees the ability to seek asylum here via um, you know, what campaigners will call safe and legal routes. So, you know, it's very hard to claim asylum in the UK unless you can get here illegally or you are lucky enough to be resettled. One of the one of the very small number of people resettled under official hmm. resettlement schemes. So, you're, you know, you're in a kind of catch-22. You, you need asylum, but the only way you can get it is if you travel without permission and then the government doesn't want, you know, then the government will perhaps want to punish you for doing that mm. um and that's certainly like i think the intention of the the borders bit of the borders and nationality bill at least mm. um and you know this so i've done a lot of reporting on um the experiences of people who come to europe to seek asylum i spent i spent several years um traveling around europe and meeting people and staying in touch with them and learning about their journeys and so mm. on and i think one of the for me, one of the sort of uh, constants of, of this issue is that when governments shut down routes for people, it creates more dangerous and more difficult routes. You know, it may well achieve a kind of blunt aim of a government to reduce perhaps an overall number of people traveling, but it will never stop people trying and it will never stop routes entirely so what happens is routes become more dangerous mm. uh, and also become fuel for right-wing panics over immigration and you've, you've seen that process with what's been happening uh, in the English Channel over the last year or two mm. you know the reason why we now see more people using boats to cross the English Channel is because it's been harder for people to stow away under lorries Mm -hmm. uh, because there's been reduced lorry traffic during the pandemic. And also I was reading the other day, it, it may also be because after the uh, 38 or 39 people mm -hmm. were discovered uh, dead in the back of the, the lorry in Essex, there was a there was a big kind of crackdown in France on, on lorry smuggling, you know. And so the result is, well, it hasn't stopped people traveling entirely, but mm -hmm. the people who do travel are now using a new and more potentially more dangerous and certainly more spectacular method of transport because they're, they're using boats. 
and you know the response of a politician who just wants to be hardline about it is to just look at that and rather think about that sort of vicious mm. cycle is just to think well how do i make this go away how do i do something tough enough that, that it will make the problem end once and for all and that's the logic that pretty patel has been following you know it, it's based on you know probably taking inspiration from australia partly that you know mm -hmm. if you make conditions uh tough and punishing enough for asylum seekers who do arrive then it will convince people not to travel in the first place mm. um i think but, reasonable people out there will it'll be apparent to them and and very obvious that britain is an island you're going to have to pass through another third country so yeah the the idea that somebody can't have passed through any other country to get here before they they claim a, asylum is absurd isn't it yeah um well quite rightly and i think the the question you know this, this policy in my opinion should be based on asking the question well why do people feel they have to travel through a third country or a fourth country or a fifth country hmm. to claim asylum and the certainly in the reporting that i've done over the years the answers are way more complex and interesting and potentially hopeful i would say than, than they're given credit for in you know you know in a lot of the media coverage the idea is that it's all about people trying to kind of scam the british state out of something that it's so-called asylum shopping that people just come here because they want a good deal and and so on whereas actually <clears throat> you know there are many is it sort of multiple reasons why some asylum seekers will want to come to the uk and those are to do with things like family ties mm -hmm. cultural ties colonial sort of historical colonial relationships and feeling like you already have a connection to britain mm -hmm. all of these things well actually you know that makes makes the issue a lot more complex but um in a way should be seen as a positive sign that Britain has got these connections with the rest of the world. And actually maybe, you know, we can work on opening them up rather than treating them like a kind of weakness. So it mm. has to be, has to be cracked down on. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Daniel, for, for speaking to us about your, your seminal article, which um, shined a light on the home office and, and how it functions. So thank you so much. for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at CARAGCoventry. So until the next episode of Still We Rise, thanks for joining us and goodbye.